Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. You're about to hear the recording of a live conversation from November 4th, 2021. We hope you enjoy the show. Tashi Delay, and welcome to Tibet Talks. I'm Ashton Verghese of the International Campaign for Tibet, and I'll be your host for today's episode. My colleague, Tencho Getzo, is just returning from the Geneva Forum. Before we start today's program, we'd like to wish a happy Diwali to all of you who are celebrating today. As we speak, leaders from around the world are meeting in Glasgow, Scotland for COP26, a UN climate change conference that the US climate envoy, John Kerry, has called the last best hope for the world to get its act together. ICT is also at COP26, in fact, we're moderating a panel discussion called Tibet's Climate Crisis, Critical Lessons for Global Climate Policy. As daunting as the climate challenge is, it's important to remember what we're trying to conserve, and it's vital to find the inspiration to do so. To help us with that, we have the perfect guest for today's episode. He is the editor of the new book, This Fragile Planet, a collection of 80 inspiring quotes about the environment from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, matched with 120 eye-catching photos and visuals from a dozen professional photographers. Our guest is also a photojournalist who has researched and written about Tibet for over 35 years. He is the author of a dozen books about the Himalayan and Southeast Asian regions, including Meltdown in Tibet, an expose of China's reckless destruction of ecosystems from the highlands of Tibet to the deltas of Asia, and The Snow Leopard's New Friend, a children's book about Tibetan animals. It's our honor to have him on the show today. So please join me in welcoming our guest for the hour, Michael Buckley. Michael, Hi, thanks for being Hi. here and welcome to Tibet Talks. Yeah, joining virtually. We're glad to have you. Thanks for making time for this. I know it's a little bit late where you are. Um, we'll get the no, conversation no. started. Not too bad. So, Michael, I'd like to start out first by asking you to share with our audience a little bit about yourself, your background, and what brought you to this issue of Tibet that you care so much about. Uh, well, I started out uh, as a travel writer, and I got a contract to uh, produce a book on China, which was a mega project that turned into 800 pages of stuff. Um, and then after that, the part that was missing that we couldn't get into at the time was Tibet. So a year later, by accident or by whatever, the Chinese opened up Tibet and I dived in there and I, I asked them, can I go and do a guidebook to Tibet? And I said, sure. So I went in there, I sort of stumbled in, but I was not prepared for what I saw. Um, you know, China's a very different story from, I mean, Tibet's a very different story from China. But what I was also not prepared, because I kept going backwards and forwards to Tibet to update, was that things were changing uh, and not for the better. And, and uh, it was the climate the things that were changing, you know, the rivers, the mountains, things you never expect to change. So that rang a few bells that I had to do something about that, uh, which I, so I started making short documentaries about that, and that um, sort of snowballed into uh, other things like uh, a book. And also eventually this book was uh, written by His Holiness, basically, and I'm the editor. And then I curate all the photos for that. He made a lot of very valuable contributions to our understanding of Tibet's environment. So we're very grateful for all the work that you've done. And I understand also that you have a presentation for us where you'll be able to provide a brief intro and interview of the Tibetan plateau and the unique qualities and the unique challenges that it faces. Um, so I will go ahead and bring up your presentation. And Michael, I will uh, let you take it away from there. Sure. Uh, well, and I've only got about 10 minutes to do this, so we can't cover everything, of course. And we'll look at it through the Dalai Lama's perspective, perhaps. So uh, here he is planting a tree. Uh, he's very keen on gardening. He's very keen on the environment. And he's always been that way uh, from very early days, you know. Um, so it, it's a not very well known fact that his uh, the 1989 Nobel Peace Prize was the first ever awarded on the basis of environmental preservation. Uh, because he proposed uh, that the vast region of Tibet, the size of Western Europe, be turned into a zone of peace and a special nature reserve, the largest protected area on, on earth. 
if you look at the photograph here, he's under the Bodhi the tree in Bodh Gaya. And you know, the, the Bodhi tree has special significance to Buddhism because it's where everything started under the Bodhi tree. And also, you know, uh, the Buddha passed away under the, the tree as well. So the Chinese occupiers of Tibet ignored his vision, which is outlined in the Nobel Peace Prize. And instead, they've desecrated the land of snows. They're blocking the major rivers with Tibet with mega dams. They've turned the vast grasslands into desert with extensive mining. They've cut down all the old growth forests of eastern Tibet. It's an ecological disaster under Chinese rule. Uh, there's no disputing that. So what I was trying to do with this book was to give His Holiness his perspective on his homeland. And he has a lot to say about nature and natural things. And um, he's bring, he brings forward an ethical approach to climate change solutions because we cannot solve this with science alone. It doesn't work. We need secular ethics or ethics or moral compass. So most solutions are long on science, but short on ethics. And basically what we need is a change of consciousness in to solve this climate problem. We need people to be uh, re not only respecting native nature, but revering nature. Uh, if you revere something, you're gonna protect it. And that's what Tibetan Buddhism brings because of its background in uh, Bon, which was animus based. Um, it sort of brings in this, thing of, you know, destruction of nature is an alarming crime, you know, in Tibetan Buddhism. But what he says, and this is a quote here, destruction of nature and natural resources results from ignorance, greed, and lack of respect for the earth's living things. So in this photograph here, you're seeing, it's a climate change problem. It's a meltdown in at the back of Everest, uh, which is on the Tibetan side, there's a pool there, glacial pool. But it's also, that is happening because of a rain of black soot that's coming down from China and India, but due to burning of fossil fuels. Um, and this can be solved. The, the black soot problem can be solved. It would be gone within a month if everybody there was to stop using fossil fuels. But of course, we're talking about 3 billion people almost. They can't do that overnight. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, they've not committed to any uh, reduction of coal use in both China or India. Um, so. What the Dalai Lama says that, you know, for a thousand years, Tibetans have adhered to spiritual and environmental uh, values in order to maintain the delicate balance of life across the high plateau. And that was Buddha's message, um, inspired by Buddha's message of nonviolence and compassion. Uh, we've sought to respect every form of life while our neighbors have uh, lived undisturbed. And that includes the wildlife. They had great respect for the wildlife. And there was huge herds of wild yaks, wild animals, gazelles, uh, basically they're all gone now. So coming back to Tibet, Tibet holds the largest store of ice, glacier, snowpack, and permafrost on Earth, acts as a vital refrigerator of the planet, and it does something that the Arctic and the Antarctic cannot do. It feeds in, uh, into major freshwater rivers. And that way it's uh, supporting up to 1.8 billion people, which is approximately, let's say a quarter of the planet is getting water from Tibet one way or another. Uh, and uh, what's alarming is that Tibet, or the Third Pole, has no representation at international climate change conferences such as COP26. Uh, you're missing a very crucial piece of the puzzle here. Uh, yeah, what you're looking at there is logging in East Tibet, old growth forest, uh, you know, they cut down a lot of trees. And what happened around the 1990s, about 1998, there was massive flooding on the Yangtze. So China asked the scientists, what happened? They said, well, you cut all the trees down. So then they had a moratorium on logging for a while. Anyway, I'm gonna jump forward a little bit here because His Holiness has uh, repeatedly called for urgent action on pressing climate uh, issues. Uh, he's always been, he's gone to a number of conferences. Uh, he's been the head, you know, the keynote speaker. And, you know, he appeals to youth quite a lot. Uh, so here's a protest in Delhi, 2019, pre-COVID days. Uh, you know, Delhi has major pollution problems. Um, so he's uh, he's gone global. It's not just Tibet anymore. He's looking at the global thing. He's looking at interdependence. He's looking at moral compass, secular ethics, and what can be done because we have to work together. So it's a matter of uh, you know looking after our own, own home and we need to work together to do it. Okay, this pretty much sums up what's gonna happen in Tibet maybe in the next 20, 30 years. If Tibet's rivers dry up, then Asia dies. It's a rather alarming equation, but uh, first you'll have flooding in Tibet as the glaciers melt down. And then when the glaciers are gone, you don't have any water. 
that is a huge problem. And then all of China's dams, which are all over those rivers, they won't work either. If you want to put it into very simple terms, that's it. Okay, this is uh, COP25. I was there. This is a side event. You might call it a side event. That's the Dalai Lama on the side of a truck, which was sent around uh, Madrid. And uh, you're looking at uh, Tempa uh, Zambla from TPI. He was a representative there. There was about five of us there. And on the right is uh, Ben uh, Tupton Wangchun, who took the Chinese uh, leadership to court over genocide in uh, Spain. Uh, never actually went further in the courts, but it created a huge amount of publicity. And I would add to this that it's more than genocide that's going on, it's ecocide as well. Uh, ecocide kills far more people than genocide uh, because you, you've taken away their ecosystems and their food sources and their water sources. That's a lot of people. So along the Mekong River, for example, 60 million people depend on that river. Yeah, yeah so right now we have 20, COP 2026 20, is happening. And again, you know, there's no voice for Tibet. There's very little voice for Tibet uh, because even China is not showing up at this one. Even their leadership has decided to stay away for some reason. Xi Jinping's not going there. Um, so I wanted to let's move along to some issues now. And, yeah. So uh, some... we'll uh, yeah we'll move forward on that. Uh, so first of all, thank you for that presentation. Very informative, uh, and certainly understand the urgency of the issues that we're dealing with. To bring us into the next part of the conversation, I'd like to bring on my colleague, Franz Matzner, who is ICT's Director of Government Relations, and he's a veteran of environmental advocacy. So these are issues that he's very knowledgeable and passionate about. And Franz, I will uh, let you take it away with Michael, and uh, you guys can have a conversation about the uh, environmental crisis in Tibet. Well, thank you so much, um, and Michael, for, for joining us and, and giving me a chance to, uh, you know, go a little bit deeper into some of these uh, issues that you just outlined. There, there is a, well, I thought that maybe the best way to do that in keeping with your presentation would be to go through your book, which I've done, and uh, take out some of the Dalai Lama's uh, really um, powerful, inspiring quotations, and I'll read those, um, and, uh, and hopefully we can have a little bit of discussion about about the deeper meaning meaning of those um, as we go through some of the critical environmental and human rights issues and how they're com uh, connected. So the first one, I'm even going to hold it up from this lovely book. Everyone can see it's got uh, beautiful pictures in it. Uh, the so the first one I wanted to read out is from the, about the water issues. Tibet has been regarded as the water tower of Asia's with majority of the major rivers originating from Tibetan glacial reserves, most of which are now at risk due to global warming, as well as rampant damming of rivers by China, affecting downstream countries adversely. And you've already alluded to a, um, a few of these, and I'd be interested if you could uh, give us a, a more fulsome picture on the many <laughs> challenges and problems that this kind of major damming really has for not only Tibetan culture, um, but all of the downstream countries that rely on it. Uh, so, um, you know, with that, if you could give us a glimpse into that, and, you know, I'll throw um, in some yeah, questions look, along the way. If you look at this map, you can see how important the, uh, you can see how important the Tibetan plateau is to, is across Asia from all the way from Pakistan to Vietnam and China itself, of course. Uh, so I would just briefly talk about two rivers. Uh, one is the Mekong, which goes through six countries downstream. Uh, that is heavily dammed on the Chinese side, 11 mega dams in Yunnan, uh, one more Chinese dam in Laos. Um, it's disrupting the whole riverine ecosystem. And then the other river i briefly mention is the uh, Yalong Sampo, which becomes the Brahmaputra. Currently, there are three dams up on the Chinese side, but they're planning more. And they're alarmingly, they're planning uh, at the Great Bend, perhaps the biggest dam ever built on the planet or a series of dams uh, totaling 44 gigawatts, which is enormous. It's double the size of the, the Three Gorges Dam. But recently, within the last couple of months, they've also proposed a diversion project, taking in several rivers and diverting the water to Xinjiang in the far west. And they want to turn it into uh, the desert, into agricultural land, probably with slave labor from Uyghurs. I'm not sure. They didn't mention that part. Um, but you can see these gigantic water programs, you know, that they're completely ignoring the nations downstream. They don't even talk to the nations downstream. They don't even mention it. You've got to find out from satellite imagery. And uh, that's exactly what's happening with the um, 
there's a group from the states which is doing monitoring the Mekong, and they can tell what the dam levels are. This is scaring the Chinese because this information has never come out before. It's not done by the Chinese. It's done by Westerners that are monitoring the situation. Uh, uh, just yeah. one one question because we're going to try to cover a lot of different material here. Is you know there's a what I think of personally as kind of a myth around these mega hydro dams that, you know, that they're clean energy, that they don't have any, you know, ecological uh, climate or, you know, or even, you know, uh, political ramifications. And so uh, I, if you could explicate a little more of those three strikes against, uh, you know, building ever more and ever bigger hydro projects, I think that would give people a glimpse into the, the yeah. multiple tactics that, that the Chinese government is using here. Well, China's a water hog. It's been very, very greedy, and it's just taking all the water for itself. And you're, you're looking at a dam here. This is Shaowan, 4,200 4, megawatts. That's not a small dam. That is the height of the Eiffel Tower from the base up. It's double the size of Patala Palace in width. Um, you know, it's it's enormous dam. And uh, if you look at those funny little funnels at the front of this thing, those are supposed to let water through, but they don't let silt through. And silt is the uh, ingredient that is needed in the downstream countries. It's a nutrient-rich material that comes with the river. It's scouring up all this stuff. So you've got a couple of things going on with the dam. One is blocking the silt, and we'll block the silt up to about 90% eventually. Then it blocks fish migration. Well, Cambodia is heavily dependent on fish. That's where they get 90% of their protein is coming from fish. Vietnam is heavily dependent on rice. They, they need the nutrients. So. It's a disaster for these downstream countries. Uh, you know, and that's two of the impacts. If you look at behind Shaowan Dern, there's a reservoir that goes back, I don't know, maybe 100 kilometers or something. Um, that's giving off methane. Methane is a greenhouse gas that is 30 times more powerful than CO2 uh, as a greenhouse gas. So the, the, the talk about sustainable, renewable, it's all baloney. <laughs> there is no sustainable baloney when you have methane coming off these, these reservoirs. And that reservoir is dead water. It's just going around in circles. It's not moving. Um, so eventually that dam's going to plug up uh, with so much sediment, it won't be operable. And then they'll have to either demolish it or they'll have to try and shift the sediment. But China doesn't care about the sediment. They've got no way of uh, storing up that sediment to keep it moving they're, because they're only concerned with China. You know, if you had a small dam run of the river, no reservoir, that might be okay. But not, certainly not a mega dam like this. And then, you know, they get much bigger than this. There's one on the Yangtze, which is 16 gigawatts, and each of the turbines is one gigawatt. Uh, you know, they have the technology, not just for China, but around the world, they're exporting this technology for dam building. It's very, very bad what they're doing. And, you know, it, it's, yeah. Um, just, uh, you know, there's been some speculation and even some studies, uh, you know, pointing out that there may be other reasons perhaps hydropolitics and national security issues uh, that are another motivation for China building uh, their uh, major projects along some of these contested borders. I was wondering if you could speak to that for a minute because it, it, it's yeah, a what growing the, what issue. They're doing, what they're doing is weaponizing water. They can terrify these nations downstream. But basically on the Mekong, they've got so many dams, 11 dams, they can virtually turn the tap off, and they have done it. In the dry season, they've, they've actually... Uh, they let water loose in the dry season, and then in the rainy season, they're, they're holding the water. They're, they're turning, they're using it as a tap. And, you know, occasionally they release a little bit of data, and, but not, a, not much data, and they fudge the figures. You know, they tell you, oh, we're, we're only responsible for 12% of the water at this point. But they're, not, they're talking about, they cheat. They don't talk about the monsoon season figures, which are more like 40% of the Mekong. So... You know, a place like Vietnam is terrified of what's of what's happening because their major rice box get, depends on the Mekong. And uh, they're tapping into groundwater, but that's not going to last forever. That's where they're getting water from in a drought. They use the, the groundwater, but that, that's not going to last. So, you know, it is weaponizing the water, and they'll use the same thing in India on the Brahmaputra. They, could, uh, they can't turn that one off yet, but they can certainly diminish the flow if they wanted to with uh, the dams that they're building now. So this diminishing flow alters the river downstream, it changes the course of the river. Uh, the river does weird things when you start altering the flow. <laughs> and then you've got sand dredging, uh, big sand dredging all over the world, but especially in China, uh, sand is the major ingredient in concrete, and the best sand is river sand. 
and you start playing with the sand and the rivers, you completely alter the ecology there. So all in all, you know, dams are a very bad story, uh, especially the big ones, uh, the little ones less so. If they could redesign dams so they didn't have these impacts, we might have a chance, but nobody's attempting that, not yet. Michael, thank you. I'm going to move on to one, another uh, pair of quotes from your book, um, see if we can open up some of the other uh, ecological and uh, humanitarian issues that are happening ongoing in Tibet and how they're connected. And so the first is about the forestry issue that you already talked about. Uh, so when the forests die, the whole nation suffers. And when a people suffers, the whole world suffers. The large-scale deforestation of Tibet is a matter of great sadness. And then the second, taking care of our planet is a matter of looking after our own home. We can no longer exploit the trees, water, air, and animals with no care for the coming generations. I support young people's protests against governments in action over the climate. So if you could take us through that, um, that would be wonderful. Well, actually, the first casualties in Tibet were the forests. They were severely cut down on the eastern side, Kham, um, all the old growth forests. They turned it into furniture, chopsticks. Uh, the next casualty basically was the wildlife. It just disappeared. I mean, Tibet was famous for its huge herds of animals, and you don't see herds of animals anymore. You don't see Kiang, Tibetan wild ass. You don't see them in huge groups. You see individuals, you know, five or six. You don't see the massive herds anymore. Anyway, I wanted to talk about this photograph you're looking at here. It was taken by Greenpeace East Asia, uh, undercover. And you're looking at a national park in China, in Amdo, where a coal baron is excavating a mountainside there for coal production. In the background, you see snow caps. And in the foreground, you can see a fox. That's a Tibetan red fox uh, looking very confused, like what's happening. This is a national park. Um, so this pretty much sums up the whole situation. There's a lot of corruption. They move the nomads off the grasslands. They bring in the mining. They bring in the damming. And then they put up a fake national park. Uh, it's a it's kind of weird situation. But uh, I've understood that, that, that these kind of go hand in hand, right? We have yes. the mining, uh, and whenever there, and there are, for many of the reasons you've already uh, expounded on, that this is alien to the nature of Tibetan culture and Buddhism. And yet you see protests against the mines that are suppressed brutally. It's, I was so if you could give us like a glimpse in how and how these things go together uh, to you know use the term weaponizing water, but are they doing more than that? Are they weaponizing other elements of their environmental destruction? Basically, you know, China is a colonial power, and they're doing whatever colonial power throughout history has done. And Tibet's the biggest colony left on the planet. I mean, they're just exploiting the heck out of Tibet. They've got over 125 minerals have been uh, identified in Tibet, including Amdokam. Um, and some of those are highly valuable. The uranium for their nuclear program comes from Amdo. We don't know where exactly, it's top secret. Lithium, to mention another one, West Tibet, and also in Qinghai. Um, you know, we don't know how much lithium they're getting from Tibet, but certainly they're going to exploit that resource from the lakes. And you can see the damage done to the lakes. and. Um, they never tell the Tibetans what's happening, and, and Tibetans end up getting sick from some of these uh, chemical projects that are happening on their doorstep, and they don't even tell them what's happening. Uh, they don't even tell them not to drink the water in some cases. Uh, the acts are dying from drinking the water next to copper mining places, uh, things like this. So if you start joining all the dots, you know, the dams power up the mines, uh, you know, the mines are taking away land from nomads. No, you know, the, the nomads have no choice. They have no participation in any of this. And if they protest, they just go to jail or worse. Uh, so you're looking here at a nomad resettlement camp, um, concrete yeah. structures. Uh, before, and before we go into that, let me read uh, the uh, Dalai Lama's take on this uh, particular problem, which, is, which I think is a, personally, I think is, a, is a, a sadly perfect example of how the environmental tragedies are linked hand in hand with uh, China's clear strategy, Chinese government's clear strategy to dismantle Buddhist and Tibetan uh, traditional culture in Tibet, because clearly this is not how nomads originally prospered. So here's the quote. Mm -hmm. I have heard that due to forced settlements of nomads nowadays into permanent houses, 
built specially for them have lots of impacts on the environment. So if you could go uh, through some of this, because I look at this picture and this looks more dire than, you know, oh, they've been moved to a nice set of, uh, you know, condos and homes. That's not what this looks like. <laughs> yeah, a little bit understated. Um... Well, you know, for, four, for about 4,000 years, you know, the grasslands is not a natural system. It evolved. It evolved with yaks, nomads. The yaks keep the grasses nice and trim. So they don't grow wild and big. And then the yaks are providing nutrients through their dung for the grasses. It's evolved together for 4,000 years. If you start disrupting that system and you, you throw out the nomads and you bring in the mining and the dams, you're going to end up with desertification. There's no nomads looking after these pastures. They've done a very good job of looking after the pastures. So the, the actually Chinese accused the uh, nomads of overgrazing, which is ridiculous. Um, and then they came up with all sorts of excuses like, oh, this is a national park now, you have to go. There's no reason why the nomads can't live within a national park. It's done in Bhutan. They do it in Bhutan. Eastern Bhutan, they have the Brokha. They live inside a national park. So what you're looking at in this picture here is a remote part you know, they don't send nomads, ex-nomads into the cities or anything. They keep them out. They just put them in a, they tuck them away in some settlement in the middle of nowhere with very few facilities. We're at the mercy of the Chinese government for handouts, even water and food. They're at the mercy. They get, they, they can't work. They don't have education. Not, they don't speak Chinese. They can't even read Tibetan. You know, so the chances of getting work uh, for retraining, the Chinese government makes no attempt to retrain them. It's just talk basically a big game about that, hmm? right? I mean, they talk a big game about that. Of oh, this is you know modern, modernizing, and this is yeah, necessary. They talk about the yeah, and you know, even some of the practices on uh, the nomad culture that still remain. You know, fencing in grasslands. Uh, you know, creating yeah. all these internal divisions to once again you know slice up and dice up the environment, but also the traditional way of life. Well, the Chinese spin doctors are pretty good at uh, trying to explain this to the international community. They just say, oh, we need national parks. And uh, that's, a, that's a cover. The national parks are a cover for removal of the nomads, pure and simple. And, you know, who is better in the national park to act as a um, park ranger than Tibetans? But the problem is, as we've seen from several documentaries, the Tibetans are too good at doing their job if they would be given the job as ranger, and that's upset the uh, corrupt Chinese officials that like to go hunting or something like this, right? So they won't use them because they're too good. <laughs> so uh, it's a very strange situation, but, you know, they keep blaming the nomads for everything, but in fact, the nomads are the solution. If you want to save the grasslands, you need the nomads. But they resettled something like 2 million nomads between 1990 and 2020. They're mostly gone except for Kamenamdo pockets, you know. Uh, the way of life is disappearing. Is this the only example of the transfer is into, uh, you know, uh, what we're seeing on the screen now? Because I've also heard that they, they are taking some uh, Tibetans and sort of moving them far from Tibet into, you know, regions and industries where it's not, you know, they don't speak the language, it's hard to get work, but they're really removed. Uh, from their family connections uh, and environment. Yeah, they're, they're taking a page out of the uh, situation in Xinjiang, Xinjiang, where they're virtually, you know, they're putting them into into cheap labor camps. You know, uh, that's one thing that's happening around Lhasa, um, and then they shift those out to other places that that need the workers and not willing to pay much for the workers and stick them in dormitories uh, in rather unsanitary conditions. So, you know, what happens in the, in the camp that you're seeing right now is Tibetans have nothing to do. They end up drinking, playing pool, and, um, you know, they just lose their, their whole purpose in life, and they turn into beggars. You know, Tibetan nomads are not beggars. They've been independent for a long time. They don't need anybody else if they have their own system. They just need their yaks. That's it. So their whole culture disappears. It's, it's cultural genocide once you take do, them off the grass. Do you believe that that's deliberate? Ah, yes, because, um, you know, all over China now, the policy has been recently announced by Xi Jinping that um, the minorities have to go, all of them. Every, there's something there's some like 60 minorities across China. He's basically saying we want them all to be Chinese. We don't want minorities anymore. That's it. So it's official policy right now. Which is definitely contrary to their stance publicly. Yes, in the past. but they're very good. They're very good at smooth talking. 
you know, uh, basically my rule of thumb with Chinese, whatever they say, you believe the opposite. So if they said they're helping the rivers, that means they're destroying the rivers. <laughs> if you turn it into the opposite equation, uh, you'll probably get at the truth. So it, it happens quite a lot. You know, I mean, Xi Jinping, he talks about green this, green that, green that, but he doesn't even show up at COP26. What's green about that? You know, it's, he's, he's chickening out, you know? He's chickening out because of COVID, which, you know, China created. So uh, if he doesn't want to show up at COP26, but all the other leaders are, it shows you what his priorities are. He's not concerned about green this, green that. He's not concerned about it at all. It's a, it's a bait and switch for control. Yes, it's bait and switch, and uh, they have some sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, propaganda department that they sit down and they work out all the arguments, say, well, we're going to work on this one and that one. And it even involves the Chinese Academy of Sciences, which has been caught lying about various things. Um, you know, it's a scientific body, but they don't have scientific principles when it comes to their reports. Uh, we've been found out several times that they've, they've been putting out wrong data. And, uh, you know, this is the major body, scientific body in Beijing. Uh, so if that happens, then anything can happen. Yeah, uh, yeah that's another, I would like to move on to just at, at some point to some of uh, the solutions to this, uh, these issues that you've already alluded to, but that the uh, Dalai Lama more and more is speaking about. Before we do that, uh, I, I did want to go into one more. It might be a little abstract, but how do you see over time uh, this pattern in Tibet of taking away culture and taking away their native tradition and how that's linked to the long-term strategic control of, of Tibet and, you know, how has that evolved over time and where are we now in that process? Well, unfortunately, we're a little bit too late for just about everything. I mean, China is talking about carbon neutrality at 2060. That's a joke. You know, we need carbon neutrality at 2030. And even 2030 is late. So, you know, they're, they're not looking at the future the way that they should be looking at the future. Uh, you know, things have to happen now. To be, we, we see massive chaos going on in ecosystems around the world. Every year it's getting worse and worse. And yet these politicians and leaders, they're all dickering over this at COP26 and God knows what they'll come up with, but it won't be enforceable. Um, there's no policing of it, you know, uh, Japan turns around and says, well, well, because of Fukushima, we're going to cancel all our nuclear now. So it means we'll go back to coal. And there's nobody telling them, no, you can't do that. You made a commitment. No, no, it's okay. I'll just do what I want. So, you know, China's made no commitment over coal until the year 2030 when it says it will taper it off. What does that mean, taper it off? We have no idea what taper it off means. And then they talk about carbon neutrality, but carbon neutrality comes at the expense of dams. What they're aiming to replace the coal with is hydropower including the massive 44 gigawatts at the Great Bend of the Sunk Pole. But that's not a solution. You're killing the river. You've got one solution to one problem, but you, you bring in another huge problem, especially for India, uh, where you're killing that river. And that's a very important river for India. Uh, so they've already done on the Mekong. They basically have already killed the Mekong. It's dead, half dead. Um, so, you know, uh, solutions, I don't see a lot of visionaries coming out of China. There, there is, you know, there are NGOs that are doing very good work in China that are shutting down dams, they protest and so on. There are individuals in China, because it's a, you're allowed to criticize the government on environment, as long as you don't nail individual ministers who are corrupt um, <laughs> or, you know, whatever. So um, they, they do allow protests, but only from China, not from Tibetans, only from Chinese NGOs. And some NGOs have been fairly fierce. They actually prosecuted the Chinese government in Yunnan over not doing a proper environmental assessment. That's un unprecedented. They took them to court. <laughs> you see, if I had my way, I would take the entire Chinese government to court for ecocide. Uh, that's what, what's happening here. It's, you know, in other countries, ecocide is individual corporations. In China, it's the state-run corporations, the Three Gorges Dam Company, Sino Hydro, these are, these are the world's top dam builders, and they need to be stopped in what they're doing. And unfortunately, COP is um, recommending that hydropower go ahead. You know, they get a lot of representation there that says, well, hydropower is good, let's do it. You know, solve all our problems. It's not going to solve our problems. Um, so It seems to me that that, that that information about the climate impact, mm -hmm. negative climate impacts of, ma of major dams, hasn't penetrated the conversation enough. 
both into the you know environmental community and into the international negotiation uh, well, community. And I, I'd be curious if you have advice or thoughts on how to raise that more often. Well, the problem is that the hydropower industry, which is big and has lots of money, have managed to you know like rather like the cigarette companies or you know, they've managed to get their propaganda around that, you know, this is green, this is sustainable, it's renewable. And then who is countering that? That a handful of indigenous people on some obscure river in the Amazon, you know? So uh, they, you know, they've got their way with governments, with companies, and they're spreading this, they're trying to spread this baloney around that, you know, dams are good. And in a small way, dams are okay, but not the big ones. The big ones are highly disruptive, highly dangerous, and they may cause other problems. They might be linked with earthquakes. Um, they might cause landslides, which has already happened to Three Gorges. Uh, and eventually they may collapse. Well, there's a, there's a tsunami coming down the river if that thing collapses, and it's happened a few times in China already. Um, there was one back in the 50s that killed 300,000 people. They kept quiet about it for a while. It was only 10 years later that we found out about it. Banchwell was called. Um, you know, these, these dams, they don't last forever. After 50 years, you need to either rebuild the dam, reconstruct it, or you need to take it down. And that's what's happening in the States. They're yeah, actually yeah. decommissioning dams. Well, so, since we've um, got, I think we've got about uh, a few minutes left so that we can let the audience have some have some questions. And I, I want <laughs> hoping to end a little bit here on, uh, on a, on a, on a happy note um, of the Dalai Lama has always put forward uh, the concept of a, a, a universal moral compass and to take, you know, as you said at the, in your opening presentation that we need to pay attention to the science, but we also have to, you know, include in that, you know, some of our values, some of our ethical stances, uh, and it, they can't be pitted once against the other. So I'm going to read a final quote from your book. Uh, and, and hope you can uh, help us figure out how do, we, how do we take that concept, that concept of, we can call it rights-based or environmental justice or any of the terms that are out there uh, and, and effectuate it. So here's, here's the quote. Uh, the time of social, emotional, and ethical learning has come. Our compassion cannot be limited only to those who look like us or who share our citizenship or religion. It must be extended to encompass everyone on the basis of our own common humanity. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how does this reflect or uh, Buddhist belief systems and uh, how that feeds into the curriculum that the Dalai Lama has helped uh, put together and is now um, really spreading to many schools across the country. Yeah, well, that's one of his major contributions, uh, the SE learning curriculum which is in the primary schools and the middle schools, uh, eventually will go higher, I guess. Um, and I think one of the basic aims of this is uh, anger management, dealing with emotions, which cause a lot of problems. Um, they cause world wars, emotions uh, getting out of hand. Uh, so he's targeting kids uh, because he thinks, you know, the kids are going to do something and kids are fearless. You know, an eight-year-old kid is fearless. They got nothing to lose. And, you know, his values, what he's saying with secular ethics is the problems we have to deal with are greed, apathy, and ignorance. Those are our biggest problems. It's not so much a scientific solution we're looking for. It's, it's a moral transformation of consciousness that people, if they think they have a responsibility, then they do their part, and then we all get respect for Mother Nature. Uh, there's not enough respect for Mother Nature happening. And more than that, he wants reverence for Mother Nature. Uh, more than respect, and that's what Tibetan Buddhism brings to the brings to the table is massive respect for all sentient beings, not just uh, the land. It's the animals, the insects, everything. I don't know about mosquitoes, and I don't know about rats. They're not that compassionate about those. Um, but never had mosquitoes in Tibet until recently. So you know, it's a it's a very simple thing that he's doing. Um, he's trying to bring in the moral ground, the moral compass. And we need to focus more on that to be able to solve these problems. There's no way around this. But let's go back one picture. This is a, an ingenious solution from Ladakh. And there are many solutions from the Tibetan world. Uh, you know, uh, Bhutan has gone uh, no GM crops. Uh, Bhutan is the greenest country in Asia. This is Ladakh at the other side. They're doing massive solar plants um, because there's a lot of desert there. You're looking at an ice stupa. And this is a combination of spirituality and science mixed together. And in the foreground, you'll see a monk. And that's because there's a monastery very close to that building of this thing. 
And the person who is behind it, the um, uh, Driegung leader, who's funding this thing, uh, the Eistupa, he engages all the monks to build it. It's built of pipes and branches. In the winter, they cover it, you know, it's covered in water, it freezes, and then in the summer, it releases water to the farmers in the area, uh, which is replicating the actions of a glacier. So this is a peculiarly Tibetan solution to the lack of water in the summer. And it's also a religious spiritual combination because it's called an ice stupa and because the monastery is behind it. And if the monastery was not behind it, they would not get built because, you know, they tell the people, we like this. People go ahead, okay, we'll do it. If they don't tell them that, they, it's all volunteers <laughs> that are building these things. They cost about $30,000 to build. So this is an ingenious solution. There are solutions. And they're happening in Sikkim. They're happening in Bhutan. They're happening in Ladakh. Uh, and those are Tibetan areas. And the solutions are very easy to, implicate, to put in force there because of the inherent values from Tibetan Buddhism that uh, say this is a great idea, protecting nature. We like it. So, you know, also with the SE curriculum, Dalai Lama is looking at the next generation of kids and also the next generation of activists. And he's saying that if we can train eight-year-olds to take part in meditation, we would solve all our world war problems. You know, uh, it may be that simple. Thank so, you, Michael. Thank uh, you very much. That, that We've really covered a lot of ground here, um, as does your book. Uh, so I, I really appreciate the time to, to have this conversation. Yeah, thank you both. Thank you, Michael, for for all of those answers and for uh, sharing with us uh, your knowledge and your work on Tibet. And it's wonderful to have both of you be able to discuss this topic as you both have a lot of experience with uh, environmental advocacy. Certainly a lot of challenging information in that presentation, but it's uh, important for us all to reckon with that. And uh, it's also wonderful to see, like you said, there are solutions that are emanating from the Tibetan world that we can all learn from. Um, we have uh, a few minutes left here, and I'd like to turn to some questions from our audience. So thank you to all of you who are watching. Um, we have a question, first of all, from Connie Orcutt, who is a member of ICT, and uh, we thank you for your support, Connie. Uh, so this question is, I'm wondering why much of the world doesn't seem to be aware of the ecological disasters occurring in Tibet. Many people know about deforestation of the Amazon and melting at the poles but the tragedy in Tibet is little known. Why is this? What can be done to spread the alarm? Also, is there any sort of world court at which crimes of ecocide, ecocide can be introduced? And uh, Michael, I'll turn that to you first, and then if uh, Franz would like to, uh, to add, he can uh, go ahead afterward. Sure, well, the basic problem is, of course, that Tibet is under Chinese control. Uh, they don't want any bad publicity getting out about Tibet, so they suppress everything. Uh, so the chain of uh, communication is that Tibetans see things happening on the ground. They take great risk with their cell phone and whatever to get it out to the West. If they're caught, they'll end up in jail or worse. And, uh, you know, it's suppression, suppression of information, false information coming from China. Everything's nice and dandy in Tibet. The people are happy. They're always laughing and singing. You know, this kind of propaganda is going on, very typical. And then what can be done about bringing Tibet to the attention of the world, well, we need to do a lot more in terms of uh, counter-propaganda, like bringing up well, our own propaganda uh, from the West, which is what I specialize in, counter-propaganda, <laughs> exposing what China is not telling us. Uh, you know, the truth. You think, well, whatever, uh, telling <laughs> us the truth, yeah, basically. Um, so when they say that, you know, this dam is not going to affect the people downstream. That's baloney, so you have to explain why. And you have to come up with facts and figures as to why. And uh, there's various groups that are doing that. But, you know, these are small groups. They don't have major access to media. You know, it's not a big story. It's not in people's consciousness. When there's a disaster, you'll see press happening. But only when you get the disaster, not otherwise. It's uh, in the background, you know, things are not going on. So how do we, what can be done about this? What can we do in the future? I wouldn't know really how to answer that question, but it's only going to get worse because they've got plans. They're running out of water in China. Let's put it that way. And they're going to start diverting water for sure. They already have. When they start diverting water, you're not only robbing the people downstream, you're taking away the entire water source. <laughs> it's like having a house with no plumbing because somebody on the top floor stole all the water or somebody inside the building took all the water at the pipe, right? So it's going to get a lot worse. 
because of the water situation, the water crisis in China itself. They're talking about fighting for every last drop. That's one of the propaganda things. Every last drop they want. They're greedy. They'll, they'll go for every last drop. I don't really know how you can get that message across so much. You just have to come up with your own facts and figures to counter what they're saying. Franz, you have something to add to that? Well, I want to make sure we get uh, to all the questions that we can, uh, but I would just add one one uh, sentence, which is, you know, there is no solution like engagement. Yeah, uh, those in Tibet are being, their engagement is being cut off by a security state that actually is spreading all over the world. And the on, only counter to that, uh, I was trying, I was, seemed like I was making a joke, but it's not true, uh, is truth. And yep. we need the truth tellers to stand up and they need to press on their own governments uh, to, to, to fulfill the commitments that they take publicly about standing up for Tibet. Uh, there are countries who do that. The United States has been a longstanding uh, you know, bipartisan support for, for the Tibet, but there's always more that can be done. And, and, and there are opportunities in these international forums. So to me, it goes from you know, the grassroots advocacy up to the NGO groups who have really got to press on their governments, and then the governments need to take action, and, and you know, they need to be motivated, and that's how you motivate them. Now, when I come back to the question of ecocide, which was mentioned in that question, uh, there is no crime against humanity that is called ecocide. We have genocide, we have other crimes against humanity, but strangely, there's nothing about ecocide. Ecocide kills far more people than genocide ever will. Uh, you know, so there's, we need to have an international court that will take corporations or whatever to uh, justice and will take the Chinese government to court. But how are you going to do that? <laughs> you know, China has such influence over these governments, they'll try and nix it like they did with the genocide case in Spain. Um, they'll threaten people, so it may never go to court. But you don't have big, all the big corporations, they're all Chinese state-run in uh, China. They're not private. Well, uh, Mike, we have a few questions that have come in about your book specifically, and uh, mm -hmm. people would like to know where they can purchase the books and we can get some more information about the books. Um, so let me ask you this first. Uh, there was a question about, uh, I believe it's the Snow Leopard's New Friend, uh, the children's yep. book. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that, how that came about, and uh, what, uh, what inspired you to write that? Oh, well, what happened was, um, here's the book. That's the English version. I have it also in Tibetan, translated, uh, because actually it started as life as a Tibetan version because the director of the LTWA, he liked the stories, and he says, well, you've only got five stories. Can you give me ten? And I said, oh, God, all right. Um, so I did ten, and then um, I started looking at this thing and said, this, this is going to work well for educating kids about environment, right? So what we're planning to do with this, the Tibetan version goes out free to TCV schools across the Himalayas. Uh, the English version is published by the same publisher. I forced him to publish this thing. Uh, the same publisher as the This Fragile Planet. Um, and they kind of go, you know, together in some ways because these animals from Tibet, they're very rare. They're fantastic. They're unheard of. Uh, even Tibetans don't know much about them. Um, Tibetan red fox, you ask a Tibetan, you draw a blank. You know about foxes, yes, but Tibetan red fox, no. Or Tibetan uh, sand fox, they don't know anything about them. So, I uh, found that uh, there's huge interest amongst the Tibetans and the kids about these animals, but also across the world. So I think you've got to start with kids, and that's what Dalai Lama is also doing, is targeting the kids, the next generation, because that's where the future is. And if you can get them early enough and get them interested in things like this, then it's a lifelong thing. Like Dalai Lama's commitment is lifelong uh, for environment, right? So. Yeah, thank you, Michael. And uh, we should mention, uh, and as I said, a few people were asking about uh, where they can purchase the book. Glad to let you all know that uh, both The Snow Leopard's New Friend and This Fragile Planet are now available in our ICT store, which you can access at savetibetstore.org. So please go there. Um, both books are available. And uh, in addition to the books, while you're there, you can also pick up our ICT 2022 calendar which is <laughs> Rivers of Tibet, Life Waters of Asia. And uh, we are heading into the end of the year and the holiday season. So we have a lot of great options. You have uh, both of Michael's books and uh, we have our, our 2022 calendar, which includes a lot of really beautiful and striking photography of the rivers in Tibet and uh, discusses their importance but, to the entire Asian continent. 
I must commend you for the calendar. And, uh, you know, I think visuals put the pictures worth a thousand words, as they say, puts you on the spot and it gives you a much better idea. I mean, you can talk all you want about the mountains of Tibet, but until you've seen them, the massive scale of the, of the mountains, just it does not happen, not even in a photo. You still don't get it. You know, you have to be on the spot for that one. And you're in total awe. You know, standing at the back of Everest, you're just like, oh, my God. So pictures can give you some of, some idea of that. Yeah, thank you. So, and, and uh, you know, there are so many beautiful photos in your book. And uh, it's been really wonderful to talk to you today. And we appreciate well, all the time I, I, that you well, shared with before us. Before we depart, yeah, I Yeah, if you have some final these, words, you know, please. Well, I'm saying that a lot of these photographers remain anonymous. Um, some of them are known. Uh, because of, you know, they want to travel back to regions of that, maybe not to Tibet itself, but to Andokam, and they don't want their name. But So I have to thank the photographers. They contributed some of their best work, but I can't even give names for them, um, such as the situation in Tibet, but they've done a wonderful job. And um, without the photographers, the book doesn't work that well. I think it, it's a combination of Dalai Lama's words plus the photographs that makes it work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Michael, it's been a true pleasure to talk to you. So thank you so much for taking time. I know it's, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, it's uh, close to midnight, I believe, uh, where you are. So we uh, yes, are grateful is. to you for uh, for staying up late for this. And, uh, but I'm going to stay been... up for the next one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, we will. Uh, that is something I wanted to mention. We'll be back uh, in another two weeks, actually, on November 18th with another episode of Tibet Talks. And that one will focus on decoding the CCP, where we will talk about the CCP slogans and how to understand them. So Michael will be there to watch as well, and we hope all of you will join us. Mm. That's so a good thank topic. You all. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you all for, uh, for watching this episode of Tibet Talks. Thank you, Michael, and thank you, Franz, uh, for that conversation. We'll see you again in a couple of weeks. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and stay active. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit savetibet.org support. Thank you and see you next time on Tibet Talks.